Hi guys, my name's Jason and this is the UK Money Podcast. If you are a regular listener of the podcast, you'll know what it's all about, you know what I talk about. If you're not, if you're, if, it's, if you're new, if this is one of your first episodes you're listening to, thank you very much. Thanks for clicking on it. Thanks for having a listen. Um, but as the title of the podcast kind of gives it away, I talk about money. So anything basically to do with your personal finances, whether that's investments, budgeting, pensions, um, just loads of different topics around how to help you manage your finances better and how, how to help you get ahead financially. Now, I am a financial planner, so I provide financial advice to clients all day, every day. But as I always say on this podcast, it's really important to note that nothing I talk about should be considered financial advice. Financial advice is a very personal thing where I get to know my clients really well before I give them my advice on what I think is best for them. And obviously in this kind of format, I'm just giving some general information. Hopefully it's still helpful. Now, on today's episode, it's very much um, going to be centered around listener questions. So if you listened last week, um, you'll know that I have changed podcast hosts, which means you can now leave a voice message for me directly in the description below. So if you have a finance question, a money question, click the button and leave me a voice message. That has been really successful. So I've got a couple of questions today that I want to talk about. Um, and I've had a couple of other questions come through via email. I may not get time to do them today, but that will obviously be in a future podcast. So if you have a question, like I say, please let me know because the chances are you'll end up with getting it answered on the podcast. If you'd rather not leave a voice message, you can always get in touch with me via email as a couple of people have done this week as well. That's jason at jasonmountford.com. That's also down in the description of the show as well. So I've got a couple of different questions to go over today that are both quite different. They come in multiple parts. So there's quite a bit for me to kind of get my teeth stuck into and talk through. Um, But the first one I'm going to play for you today is from my listener, Alex. Hi, Jason. I'm Alex. I'm wondering if there's any mileage in using a bunch of referral cards. I have a friend who has a system with about seven cards that he transfers payments via. Um, And that sounds like a lot of work. I'm wondering if there's any good tips that you've got for that kind of thing, you know, rewards programs. Cheers. So thank you very much for that question, Alex. I think it's a really interesting one because it's quite different um, to the normal kind of financial planning, investment type of questions that we get, uh, that I get, but it's still obviously really related to to, to money, to finances, to to doing more with your money and, and, and getting more from your money. So um, in terms of the, the, the first part of that question, to be honest, I'm not 100% sure uh, what Alex is meaning there in regards to uh, referral cards. Um, I know there's there's different programs that the banks run and that sort of thing, but I, I can't probably speak specifically to referral cards as such. But if you've got more information, please do let me know. But I think the second part of that is is really interesting, and it's around you know rewards programs like uh, I guess you know Tesco Club Card and and credit card points and things like that. And I imagine what he's referring to in terms of referral cards is probably something similar you know, some sort of rewards program where by using a particular card or transferring money to a particular uh, account, you get points or some sort of rewards. And broadly speaking, you know, I think these kind of rewards programs are often a really good idea, you know, especially um, ones where you don't need to spend money any differently in order to get those rewards programs. Now, I can't kind of recommend any individual ones specifically. There's only obviously a limited number that I 
I use myself. Um, the one that I probably use the most personally is Tesco Club Card Points. Um, and I think, you know, that's that's a really good example. It's one of the biggest um, rewards programs in the UK. Um, and, you know, it, it does provide tangible benefits in, in the form of, um, you know, actual pounds that you can spend on your shopping or on, on other different bits and pieces. I kind of have a philosophy in terms of any form of rewards. And that is whether you're talking about credit card points, whether you're talking about um, Tesco club card points, whether you're talking about um, cashback offers for buying different things. And that is basically that you should only sign up for them. You should only do, uh, you should only look for those kind of programs if it's money that you're going to be spending anyway. Because effectively, that is what these companies are trying to do by offering you these rewards and offering you these points. They're not just looking to do that to be able to help you out a bit and give you a little bit extra for, for shopping with, with them. They're trying to, number one, get them to get you to pick them over somebody else. So if you're racking up a lot of Tesco Club card points, you're probably, um, and you're, you're quite keen on those, you're getting up a decent balance, you're less likely to then go to Sainsbury's because unless you've got a lot of nectar points, you're you're missing out. So they're trying to provide, create some additional brand loyalty, um, which is not a problem. You know that's fine. You know as long as again, as long as you're going somewhere, you would go anywhere anyway. Um, I don't see a problem with that. You know if you always do your weekly shop with Tesco, then it's a bit, anyway. It's a bit of a no-brainer to sign up for something like like the Tesco Club Card. It's points for money you're already going to spend. But the other. Uh, reason they do it is because they're trying to get you to spend more money than you potentially would. And that is particularly the case for things like credit card points. Um, you may have noticed if you're a member of any of these schemes yourself, you will get different offers and vouchers and things like that. So again, using Tesco as an example, you know they'll often send you offers on different um, items for club card holders. And the temptation there is to end up buying things you don't really need, or maybe you often buy a cheaper brand, um, but because you're going to get some extra points for buying the more expensive brand or buying a 10-pack instead of a 2-pack, which is what you actually need, they're looking to upsell you and get you to spend more money. And in the form of a credit card points especially, you know that can be um, a real incentive for people to go into further debt, put more money on their credit card, because they think it's going to be valuable for points. So from my perspective, I think you know these schemes are, are potentially really good, but you just need to be really careful that you're not changing your spending habits to make you worse off financially just to look for points. Because as much as the points are great, they can add up over time, you know, they're not a significant amount of money. You know, unless you're running a a business with really high turnover via a credit card with points and th- or something like that. Um, you know, you, you're, you're not going to be, there's a limit to how much benefit you're going to get without spending a real significant amount of money. Um, and that's the same with things like, um, you know, sign-up bonuses as well. So credit cards are really popular for that. Uh, often places like Amex or, or, or particular banks will offer 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 points, whatever, if you sign up with a, with a new credit card with them and then spend a certain amount of money on them on that card. And again, you know, if you if you if you need that for a particular reason and you're good with credit cards and maybe you're canceling an existing one and just 
swapping it for something new um, and you're very on top of things, that's not necessarily a problem. Where it becomes a problem is if you end up with an additional £3,000 credit card limit that you don't need. You're not great with credit cards. You, you sometimes will carry a balance and pace of interest. And therefore, the fact that you've got 10,000 points or 20,000 points for signing up for that card is negated by the fact you're now paying more interest on a credit card debt or um, spending more money on that credit card that you, you weren't originally going to spend. So it's all about weighing those things up. Um, I think, you know, there's some fantastic resources out there. Um, if you're really into this thing, there's some, um, I think Head for Points is one of them, one website where they go really in depth into all this kind of stuff. There's different online forums where people are constantly updating on new offers and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, you can get as into it or as not into it as you want. From my perspective, like though, like I say, I just like to keep things really simple. If there's somewhere that I shop really regularly anyway, and I'm not planning on changing my spending habits, um, then definitely sign up for the points. You know, I've got a, a credit card with a reasonable limit. It's paid off every month. So why wouldn't you sign up to, to the, to the, um, to the points arrangement? Because, you know, it's, it's not costing you any extra, but just be very careful around your behaviors around it and making sure it's not going to change the way you're spending your money. A second, um, sort of part of this as well is, um, maybe a bit closer to what um, Alex was talking about in the initial part of that question is quite often banks will pay you money to switch to them. So switching banks is much easier now than it used to be. Um, and often banks will offer you, you know, hundred pounds, 200 pounds, something to switch everything over and they transfer all, over all your direct debits and things like that. You know, again, I don't see any specific problem with that. You know, if you're able to get some money for free, that ends up with you not spending more or doesn't end up with you having more debt, really don't see any issues with, with people with people doing that. If you're looking for that kind of stuff as well, you know, Martin Lewis, the money, um, money saving expert is fantastic for those sorts of things. They've got a big, nice list of all the best deals at the moment. I'll put a link in the description for that. Um, so definitely check that out. But uh, again, that's the, the overarching rule is just don't spend more money in order to get points or in order to get cash back or in order to get some additional benefit or feature. My next question is a really good one as well. This is from Jerome, um, and it's quite an in-depth question. So I'm going to kind of I'm going to play the whole thing, but I'm going to pick a few bits and pieces out there because I think it's a really good. Um, there's a really good kind of overarching message that I think kind of wraps around this whole question. So I'm going to play this now, and this is from my listener Jerome. Hi Jason, so my question today is, do you feel like the stock market is overvalued and a bubble waiting to pop? Because we know historically, whenever a correction has happened in the market, it's taken um, a couple of years for the market to revert back to the price it was at before the crash. Whereas with COVID, it's actually taken a couple months. In the UK, we know the government have reduced VAT um, to stable inflation and that they're still um, paying for um, furlough. So when the furlough ends and the VAT reverts back to its normal rate and interest rates eventually will have to come up, do you, do you reckon that there'll be a great shift between the stock market to the bond market and that the stock market will come crashing back down again when interest rates go up? Or do you feel like the, the stock market will hold itself against the rising inflation, uh, rising interest rates? Really great, great question, Jerome, and thank you very much for sending it through. And I've got a really simple, succinct answer for you. I don't know. 
And anybody that tells you that they do know is either lying to you or lying to themselves. You know, the reality is we even sort of prior to to COVID, prior to 2008, you know, we live in a world that changes all the time. There's always new technology coming on the scene and disrupting things. There are always new crises, 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 crises. There's always new things happening in the world that impact um, impact the stock market, impact jobs, impact the economy. And none of us know when the next black swan or when the next downturn is coming, how big it will be, which assets will perform well, which assets will perform poorly. You know, no one actually knows that. And, you know, the unusual and the unfortunate thing in a lot of ways about finance is that lots of people will tell you that they do um, and they will provide very confident project, pro, projections and predictions as to what an individual asset class will do, as to what an um, individual stock will do based on their analysis. And you don't have to do a quick Google of something like, I don't know, investment banks, 2021 share market predictions. And you're going to get a massive range. And I'm not talking about getting, you know, John from Wisconsin and Phil from Aberdeen telling you what they think the stock market is going to do. I'm talking about Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Credit Suisse, you know, massive companies with billions of pounds under management, incredibly high, highly paid analysts who will all come up with completely different outcomes. And that comes down to the fact that there are so many variables. And Jerome's kind of um, brought up quite a lot of them there. So inflation, interest rates, um, job figures, the furlough scheme, different asset classes, the stock market, the bond, bond yields. Um, there is so much that goes into the economy. There are so many different factors that can impact things so many known factors and so many potentially unknown factors that it's just uh, basically, in my opinion, it's an, it's an impossible task to be able to accurately predict what investment markets are going to do. Now, we can start to have some ideas, there's some guidelines that you can sort of um, think about. You know, there is, there is economic data that you can um, look at that can help guide your decisions. But there is always going to be a, a, a huge element of uncertainty. And coronavirus is a great example of that. You know, the economic data prior to coronavirus, so say the end of 2019, is, it was pretty much irrelevant. You know, when that really started to take off in sort of April, May time, obviously before that in, in some countries, but that's kind of when it really, March, April, May, when it really started to take off in the UK, it really didn't matter what the job figures were at that point. It really didn't matter how much money companies were making. It really didn't matter what the retail um, retail um, takings were. It really didn't matter what the property market was doing. Coronavirus screwed everything, at least in the short term. And you never know when there's going to be something else like that around the corner. And there's always these different things that happen and you never know when it's going to be. So from my perspective, I don't really ever try to worry about, you know, are we in an asset bubble um, you know, is, is asset A going to perform, outperform asset B? Um, you know, should I be putting more money into this or more money into that? You know, and the old adage that financial planners will always talk about is that it's time in the market, not timing the market. And that is for that reason, number one, 
that we don't know which asset class is going to perform the best you know, over a particular space of time, especially short term. Longer term, again, you can start to get a bit more of an understanding around that. There's less fluctuations the longer your um, or variability, the longer your time frame. But you know, in terms of moving money in and out of asset classes on a weekly, daily, monthly basis, it's almost impossible to do with any accuracy. And it's why I always come back to a couple of different things. Number one, asset allocation. And it's boring, it's not sexy, but really the number one thing you can do to protect against bubbles, protect against um, stock market crashes, any form of asset crash is having the right asset allocation and having sufficient diversification. And not just setting that and forgetting that, but reviewing that on a regular basis. And let's use the stock market as an example. So Jerome asked the question, is the stock market in a bubble? I don't know. What I do know is it's really important to understand that how much um, allocation to equities, how much allocation to shares you have in your portfolio and what the potential volatility of that could be. So if you're invested into a portfolio that is 90% shares, that is going to be quite a volatile portfolio. You know, over the long term, you should hopefully perform quite well if it's well enough, to, well diversified enough, but it is going to be volatile. If on the other side of the spectrum, you've got 20 or 30% in equities, you know, that's going to be a quite conservative portfolio that will still fluctuate, but definitely not as much as something that's got a higher allocation of equities. So understanding that having a large, larger portion in equities is going to mean more fluctuations. And that means that if there is a stock market crash, your portfolio is going to feel it. It's probably going to go down quite significantly, but the idea is that when there is eventually a recovery, it will also recover quite quite significantly. Now, there is a caveat to this, and it's not just about letting your portfolio do what it does. It is to a certain degree, but it's also important to maintain your asset allocation um, through these different cycles. And what that does is it naturally provides some protection against these things. So let me explain what I mean by that. So let's say you want your portfolio to be, I don't know, let's be really generic and say a balanced portfolio with 50% in equities and the rest in bonds, gills, defensive assets like that. Now, if you invested um, on day one and the investment cycle, let's say it goes through five years of a perfectly symmetrical, um, well, let's not say five years, let's say one year, one year of a perfect, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A perfect uh, example, example year in returns. So the share portfolio outperforms the bond portfolio portion, outperforms the cash portfolio proportion. So that means your equity component has had a higher level of growth than your bonds. So actually, even though you started with a 50-50 split, because your share uh, component has grown at a greater rate, that percentage will have changed. So maybe you won't have 50% in shares in your portfolio, you'll actually have 60% in shares. And if you don't do anything and the same thing happens the next year, maybe you've got 70% in shares, again, so on and so forth. Maybe if you don't touch it at all and you leave things exactly as it is, you could end up actually in 10 years time, not having a 50% growth portfolio, 50% equities, but actually a 90%. So you've got a lot more uh, a lot more aggressive in your investment strategy without actually making any changes at all. And if, as Jerome has suggested, there is potentially a bubble throughout that period, that could mean that you're really overexposed to equities. And when that bubble pops, you're really going to feel it. 
and you're potentially going to feel it a lot more than you would have if um, you had been able to maintain a 50% allocation of equities. So for, for, that is why rebalancing is really important. You know, if uh, and you know you don't want to do it all the time, too frequently, because obviously there's costs involved, transaction costs, buy sell spreads, things like that. But at least once a year, you know, looking at that portfolio, making sure your asset allocation remains as it should be helps guard against this because what you're doing is if you if the stock market is going through a period of very strong growth you're going to be selling down some of your profits and moving it into defensive assets naturally you know you're going to be taking some of that that off the top and then buying more units or more investments within the the more defensive side of your portfolio so naturally as that when if it is a bubble and if that bubble eventually pops you will have taken profits um, off the top by completing your rebalancing. And the greater the growth that you get over a certain period of time, the greater those profits that you're going to be taking. So that is a really important part of any portfolio. And it depends on how your portfolio is managed. It, you know, if you're in an active, if you're an actively managed multi-asset fund, that would likely that will that will likely be be being done for you as part of the management costs that you're paying. But if you've got a portfolio that you've created yourself that's all sector-specific funds, so you've got, you know, or sector-specific holdings, individual stocks, things like that, you know, that's something you should really look at for yourself to guard against asset bubbles and to make sure that your asset allocation remains aligned with your invest attitude to risk, your long-term objectives, that sort of thing. So rebalancing is the, is the first thing that's really important to be able to, to guard against that. Um, the second thing is if you're in the accumulation phase, so you're saving money, you're not like in retirement and just purely drawing down on your investments, dollar cost averaging, dollar cost, there, there, there comes the Australian, dollar cost averaging. I find it really hard in certain phrases to use the phrase pound rather than dollar. It's just, it's just uh, ingrained in me. Anyway, pound cost averaging which is exactly the same as dollar cost averaging, I will say, is about how you put your money into your investments. So I've talked just then about taking profits off the top. So basically selling high and and uh, when, when, it's a, um, when it's applicable, selling high and redistributing those profits into your other assets that haven't performed as well. Dollar cost averaging is kind of a similar thing, but it's a, when you're putting additional money into your portfolio. So whether you're think, talking about um, you know, ISA contributions, pension contributions, just investing into a, a general investment account or direct equities or whatever. Dollar cost averaging, again, I did it again, did it again. Pound cost averaging is about drip feeding your money in at a set level each month or each week or however, however you want to do it, which naturally means you buy less when the price is high and more when the price is low. So let me explain what I mean by that. So let's say you've got a hundred pounds uh, a month going into your investments. It doesn't really matter if it's a pension, ice, or whatever. The rule, the the rule, kind of is exactly the same regardless of the tax structure. You've got a hundred pound a month that you decide you've got available to invest. Now, if you keep that hundred pound a month, um, well, I guess you've got a couple of options, right? The first thing is you could save that money up and try and time the market. So that's when you'd be trying to pick yourself what's in a bubble, what's not in a bubble, what's performed well, what's not performed well. And the chances are you may get that right sometimes, but you're just as likely to sometimes get that wrong. And, you know, let's say you may you save up for three months, four months, five months, and then you whack 500 quid into the market. In one day, the market could crash the next day. You know, it's always going to be a bit of a gamble as to whether you're going to time that correctly. 
The other way you can do that is, is pound cost averaging where you just put the same set amount in every month. You don't look at what the market's done. You don't alter the amount you put in. You don't alter the assets you put that money into. You just put it in without thinking of it, or thinking about it. And that has the benefit of naturally, as I said before, buying more when the price is cheap and buying, buying less when the price is high. So let's say you've got your £100 a month and you're investing into, let's, let's just make it really simple. Let's say you're investing into a particular stock that is £1 per share, right? Just really simple. You wouldn't do this. You'd be more diversified in real life, but just to make the explanation simple. It's £1 per share. You put in your £100, you buy 100 shares. Great. Fantastic. As that price starts to rise, your £100 is going to buy less and less shares. And if it starts to really rise, the amount of shares you're going to be able to buy are going to really drop. So, you know, if you are, if that share, particular share goes through a period of really strong growth and um, is getting into bubble territory and the price is insanely high, it's gone up 4x, four, four it's, it's, it's done four times your initial investment your £100 is not going to be buying 100 shares anymore. It's going to be buying 25 shares. So yes, you are still buying more. You are still buying more when the price is potentially about to pop, but you're not buying as much. So your average um, share, your average price per holding isn't going crazy because you're not increasing the amount you're buying as that price goes up. So you're limiting the damage to a certain degree by not buying as much of that particular asset as the price goes up. On the flip side, if the price crashes, as long as you're well diversified, you know, again, you wouldn't do this with an individual stock because there's no guarantee that it will recover ever. But if you're well diversified, if it's a diversified portfolio, if the price crashes, your £100 is going to buy you a lot more holdings. So maybe rather than 100 shares at a pound each, if the price goes down to 50p, you know, you're going to be able to pick up 200 shares at that same price. So, as the market goes through these cycles, you know, it means that you're able to buy more when the price is low and you'll be buying less when the price is high. So if we think about this in, in terms of a, 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 the recent example with coronavirus, you know, um, with the lead up to, to, to the COVID-19 pandemic really taking off in the UK, you know, you, you were maybe buying your 100 units as time went on. Um, we then hit the, the pandemic, really started to take off. Stock market crashed by about 40% in here in the UK. So now your £100 a month is buying you uh, almost double in terms of units or shares that it was a month ago. That means that you've then purchased a lot at a really cheap price. What happened in the UK with the stock market is actually it recovered fairly swiftly after that. Not, not completely back to its previous high, but there was a pretty rapid recovery with furlough schemes and all that sort of stuff. So then those units that you've bought at a really cheap price have grown in value really quite quickly. And as the price has grown and grown and grown and grown and got back to its previous level, you've been your buying levels have come back to a normal rate. So this this pound cost averaging almost did it again. This pound cost averaging process really just automates the behaviors that we're all trying to do, which is to buy assets when they're cheap and not buy them or sell them or limit how much we're buying as the price gets high. So from my perspective, those two things in combination, so pound cost averaging when you're putting money into investments and then making sure that you're rebalancing your portfolio on a regular basis are fantastic ways to um, guard against 
bubbles, crashes, things like that. Now, it doesn't doesn't mean that you can do that into any asset class and avoid a correction or avoid a bubble. That's not the case. It's still really important to be very well diversified from an asset perspective. So having money in different asset classes, geographically, having money in different geographies, you know, don't just have all your money in the UK, have some in the US, some through European countries, in Asian countries and emerging economies. Um, that is still really important. That's fundamentals, that's investing 101. You've still got to do that. But by um, adjusting the way that you manage your portfolio through these two methods, it really doesn't matter what the economy does. It really doesn't matter what the stock market does. And again, you know, you have to have a long enough time frame. You know, th those rules are very different. If you need your money in 12 months, two, two years, three years, you shouldn't be investing anyway. You know, this is all about ways to limit the damage when things are bad because there will be times when things are bad and maximizing your potential profits when things, um, when the opportunities are good. Um, and that's really all it comes down to, you know, doing those, having those behaviors set, setting and forgetting, not thinking about it too much, not tinkering with it too much, just having your long-term plan and sticking to it is going to generally put you in a much better position than trying to be too clever, trying to time the market, trying to pick what's on the way up, trying to pick what's on the way down. So Jerome and Alex, thank you again for those questions. That was really good. I really enjoyed that. I felt like it was a much more um, kind of interactive. It wasn't really, no one was speaking to me directly, but I feel like I provided um, much more relevant stuff there, some interesting questions. So thank you very much, guys. If, as I said at the outset, if you have a question, then please do hit that voice message. If you just go into the description of this episode, you'll see it down the bottom. You'll just see it says something like leave a message or leave a voice message. You click on a link. It doesn't matter if you're on your phone, on your PC, Mac, whatever. Click the link um, and it will take you through to a, a thing where you can just put your first name in, hit record and leave me a voice message. Um, if, you, if that's not your, your bag, if you'd rather just um, send me an email, definitely can do that instead. It's jason at jasonmountford.com. I'm less likely to get to those. So I get it if you don't want to leave a voice message, but I'm loving the voice messages. So if you really want your question answered, then that's the best way to get in touch with me. But email jason at jasonmountford.com. That's also in the link of the show. You can just click on that. It'll take you through to your email browser or email client and send me through an email. Um, other than that, guys, look, that's the episode for today. I hope that was useful. I hope that was valuable. Um, please send me through your questions and I look forward to catching up with you on the next episode. Hi guys, I just wanted to jump in really quickly to let you know about my free weekly newsletter, also called The Hedge. Every week I comb through all the social feeds and news websites to cut through the noise and bring you the latest news and ideas in investing, business, entrepreneurship and personal development. As with all content from The Hedge, the aim is to help you grow your wealth in a way that allows you to be your real, authentic self. If you'd like to sign up, you can find the link as well as the links to all our other content at thehedge.io.